Hey, where is everybody? So I would not use that pen. Okay. Hello, hello, hello. Why can't I not see? Looks like Zoom changed its thingy. I'll be right back. <laughs> Why can't I? Ah, there we go. Yes, be right with you guys. I'm just doing some, some setting thingy here for the beginning of this. Okay. Hi, Angela in Cincinnati. I'm texting the doctor. For those of you guys that were on uh, the mother's, oh my God, what am I doing? Sorry. I'm trying to, every time I do the chat, it, it makes my screen a little crazy. Can I get on the chat without it doing that? Not that you guys know. So I'm trying to see the chat. But when I'm on the chat, hold on, it's making, ah, got it. Okay. I want to be, I'm just talking to myself. Don't mind me. Okay. How do I do this to all panelists? Okay. I know what I have to click. Okay. There we go. All right. I think I'm ready. Whew. It's been a long day because sometimes I get interviewed too. You guys like my shirt? <laughs> All right. Hello, Colleen from CT. I'm assuming that's Connecticut. Deborah from Highland. I know you, Deborah. Karen from Florida. Megan, if you guys, hi, Jan. Hi, Janelle. I'll just say hi to everybody, except when your numbers, I can't say hi because they're too long. Claire and Connie and Deborah and Dixie and Ellen and Francis and Honeybee and Jan and, and Jen and Janine and Janet and Jessica and Jody. Karen, this is alphabetical order. Lacey, Marco. Megan, Patricia, Patrick, Rhonda, Shirley, Stasia, Susan, Teresa, and then if, if you get added later, I might have missed your name. Where's Big Canoe, Georgia? That's an interesting name. Okay, so we have a minute. I hope he comes on, don't you? I sure hope he does. If any of you guys were on on Sunday for the Mother's Day special, did you like the format where we could see each other or do you prefer being incognito? Also realize that only half the people turn their screen on. So, you know, when you, so just curious what you guys thought if you like it that way or if you prefer it this way, because we can do either. The thing about that way is we have a limit of a hundred. So, and maybe they can make it bigger. So I know, I think he's being interviewed, Dr. Will be right now on, on YouTube because I was watching him. So he's gonna talk about this new book. It's very, very good. You know, even if you don't have GI problems yourself, it seems like everybody knows somebody with something, reflux or Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or something like that. My laptop has been, hi, Rithvik. My laptop has the camera disabled. Oh, I see. Okay, well, that's why you probably couldn't turn it on then. So I don't know if you guys know Rithvik, but he, he writes the best questions. When I interviewed Dr. Mark Hellerberg, it's, when you do as many interviews, and I can't remember when, but if you guys are, are still worried that carbohydrates going to turn to fat, this guy's like the world's leading expert on de novo lipogenesis, or as he says, DNL, and he loves your question, Rithvik. Deep South Mississippi. Wow. Hi, Linda. So it's six o'clock. He hasn't texted me back. And, 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 you know, I can't even take a stab at the questions that came in from him because they're all doctory stuff. Looking forward to this interview. I sure hope he comes. Let's give him a couple of minutes, though. But I am texting him. And let's see. If, and you guys know that I'm doing a live every day, right? I mean, I have for, right? You, you know that, right? Like, 
you guys know that I do other things than this, right? So I've been going live every, hi Victoria, I've been going live every day since I believe it was March 20th and some days three and four times a day, but I'm starting to get tired. So it's going down to once a week starting next week. There were still two days this week where double, we were double booked, but uh, yeah, I've done an amazing job. Thanks. So yeah, it's really fun. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. But there's a lot of prep because, well, not for the cooking demos. I love the cooking demos. You're going to be seeing a lot more of them because for the cooking demos, I don't have to read somebody's book. Well, unless they have a book and then you're also doing a cooking demo. But when it's a doctor or somebody, I feel like I got to read their book or at least watch every YouTube they've done before. So Q&A, here we go. Let's see. Hi, Chef AJ. So excited for the speaker tonight. I'm loving my question. Okay, I'll, I'll save that for Dr. Uh, Will. Wait, um, oh, the link isn't working. Okay. Okay. Uh, hold on. Okay. Sorry, guys. Give me one second. I need to uh, find. He's saying the link isn't working. Just give me a second. Just talk amongst yourself. Okay. Find this. Okay. Sent. Type guys, it's his email. Will okay. I just emailed you a link. The only thing on the email is the link. Please click the link. Okay, so he's trying. Let me find you guys now. Okay, there we go. Phew. Well, at least we're in communication with him. This is exciting. Yes, it's, uh, um, if you guys haven't bought his book, I, you know, on this last interview, it made it sound like it was all, already sold out on Amazon. So, ah, yay, oh my God, you are just a rock star. I, you know, I just was watching you, an interview on YouTube. Like, do you just not do anything? I mean, you're amazing. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Well, I don't know what to say. I, um, you said your you know, book is sold out on Amazon? Yeah, it's sold out on Amazon. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I'm a little bit upset about it, but you know, uh, I guess it's a good thing. It means that there's a lot of interest and excitement for it. So, how can we get it then? Should we send people to Barnes and Noble? Should we just have them buy it on Amazon and wait? Well, because we want to support you and this wonderful book and get it to be, you know, New York Times bestseller. So, how can we help you if it's sold out? Okay, probably the best thing is go to bookshop.org. Bookshop.org allows you to buy from your local bookstore. Which, by the way, we need to, I, I feel like we need to prioritize when we're going to spend a dollar. If we have the chance to give it to a local small business, we should do that. And that's what bookshop, uh, bookshop.org does. But the other thing you can do is Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble is delivering much quicker than Amazon these days. So you can order from Barnes & Noble online and they'll get you, their, get you your book. Okay. Well, we just want the, we just want, you know, I was saying before you came on that even if a person didn't have any kind of GI distress, everybody knows somebody that does. And even so it's a great book. Even if you have nothing wrong with your tummy, just because of, I mean, this is like, this is like the encyclopedia of GI yeah. health basically. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it's the playbook. I feel like, you know, the, um, the subtitle is the plant-based gut health program. And obviously I know that you appreciate that, but you know, the, the beautiful thing, Chef AJ, is that gut health, this is just gut health. This is, this is not me trying to create the plant-based gut health program. This is gut health. This is the way our body actually functions. And our, our microbes are plant-based. They thrive on fiber. This, this should be a must-read for every GI doctor in the world. Is there a way wow. we can get one to every GI doctor in the world? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I honestly believe that it should be a must-read for all of the GI doctors because this is, um, this is transformative knowledge for our profession. You know, this is going to change the way we think about digestive disease. Yeah. Well, you're, you're kind of doing for gut health what some of the other pioneers in the plant-based movement have done for other parts of the body. Yeah, well, you, you, know, I, I, you know, it's hard for me to feel like I'm there. Um, I appreciate you saying that, but you know, I, I guess the bottom line is this, that we have new knowledge on gut health that wasn't there 10 years ago when many of those plant-based books were written. And this new knowledge shows us in a powerful way this layer of evidence that indicates once again powerfully that we are designed to eat a plant-based diet, that the optimal diet for human health is plants. Hey. Period. It's been 43 years for me. I couldn't agree with you more. Where have you been all my life, Doc? You know? <laughs> 40, 43 years, and you look like you're like 25. I oh mean, it's like God. ridiculous. Thank you. Thank you. You know, and I think about, you know, when I had a GI doctor in LA, I, mean, I don't think he'll be seeing this, but, you know, and all the medications he's on, and it's like, you know, oh, yeah, that vegan diet's good for you, you know? Right. That, yeah. well, you, you walk the talk. I mean, my, my God, you're, the people that get to see you as a doctor, they're so blessed. I mean, can you imagine all the good people? They don't live anywhere near me. I'm going to move. I'm moving to wherever you live. I'm moving. That's it. I just Come on. To, It'll be fun. I have, have, have a great time. I have to as your doctor. This must be a great day for you. It's like having another baby. Um, today has been a lot of fun. It's been, but I've been so, so here's the thing. I threw down the gauntlet. I was just like, look, I'm going to do interviews. I, I, let me be honest with you, Chef AJ. I... I had these huge, great plans that got ruined by COVID-19. And I'm just on a mission because I was not going to let this virus take away from this message that I need to share with people. And so I, I've been doing interviews. I started doing interviews at 12 today, and I've basically been going all day. And I saw like two of them. That's the funniest thing as you know, so that's, um, that's, that's amazing. Well, you know, I, I'll try not to keep you too long. Thank you for being here. Would you like to just jump into some questions? Let's jump in the questions and I'm here. I will be here for two hours if you want me to. Oh I am more than happy to go. I got well, it. Let's go. That, that, that's crazy. But let's just, we'll get the questions that have been submitted if any new ones are live. But this question from Maria is about poop in one of your favorite subjects. And yeah. is there, a, she says, is there a normal amount we're supposed to poop? Is there a minimum? Is there a maximum? Or, you know, cause a lot of people worry that they're pooping too much, that they're not pooping enough. And these are people obviously on a plant-based diet. Yeah. Well, when, when the change in your bowel habits is affecting your quality of life, that's where I begin to say, well, maybe this is a problem that we need to talk about. Okay. So now the issue is that in the United States, we have normalized abnormal. What I mean by that is that we say, oh, it's normal to have one bowel movement per day. No, it's really, that's not really true. If we were getting adequate amounts of dietary fiber 
throughout the day, we would be going two, if not three times per day. And so now that's not to say that you are unhealthy if you poop one time per day, but I think that the point is this, we should be having good formed sausage shaped bowel movements, soft, but formed, and you should feel a sense of relief and complete evacuation. When you go, those are signs of healthy bowel movements. And to me, like there is this stigma surrounding bowel movements because it's a bowel movement that it's like, Oh, we don't want to talk about that. I personally think it should be like a vital sign. I think it should be like heart rate and our blood pressure because this is a window into our digestive health. And there's nothing more important to our health than our digestive health. Absolutely. And very few doctors ask you anything like, what do you eat? How do you poop? I never, Stacey, I don't think anybody's ever asked me either of those two questions. I mean, I, those are basic questions. Those are basic questions that should be dealt with on at least in the GI space in a at a minimum. Absolutely. So Shirley, who's watching live, says she's so excited to have you here tonight. And she said she has Crohn's and is taking Humira injections every two weeks, wants to know if it's possible to get off it using a whole food plant-based diet without, you know, sugar, oil, salt. Okay. So, you know, first of all, obviously I'm not giving any direct medical advice because I'm not, this, this is not my patient. So I don't know the complete medical history. And when I have a patient who has Crohn's disease, for the people who do not have Crohn's, I just want to point out what this is. This is an immune mediated phenomenon, immune mediated condition where your immune system goes on the attack. What is it attacking? Believe it or not, it's actually attacking the microbiome. It's attacking the microbiome and Crohn's can affect anywhere in the body from the lips all the way down to the bottom and everywhere in between in terms of your intestines. The classic place is the large intestine, the colon, or the last part of the small intestine, which is the terminal ileum. And these patients often have to be on immune-reducing medications. Humira is a medicine designed to reduce the immune system. Now, coming off of Humira is complex and challenging because if you come off of it and it's a mistake, you may not be able to go back on it. And our studies say that if you come off of it and it's a mistake, the best that you're ever going to do is with that first medicine. The second medicine will not be as good. So we need to be very careful. This is high, this is high stakes. I sincerely believe though, truly, Chef AJ, that a person who is put into remission with Humira and stays on a whole food plant-based diet to rebuild their microbiome, not for three months, I'm talking for like more than a year, potentially two years, rebuild your microbiome then I, I honestly believe that we could take those patients off of Humira. But it needs to be, we need good studies to answer this question. And my friend Robin Chutkin, who's in Washington, D.C., has been starting to do this. That is terrific. What, have you ever used or heard of water fasting for helping people with these conditions? Water fasting can definitely help in terms of, some, in terms of these conditions. It helps to reset the microbiome. In fact, it's kind of interesting that you bring that up. Um, so... In patients with severe colitis, in severe colitis, they will actually have them fast and they'll give them nutrition through the IV. And when you do that, you actually, in many cases, can heal the colitis by basically having them fast. Yeah, because I've, I've spent some time at True North as a guest chef and they seem to have some good, good results there. So, yeah. great. Okay, so Kelly says... 
what is the best type of diet for someone with ulcerative colitis and no gallbladder? I've been constipated for two years. I've been following whole food plant-based diet for a year. Prior to that, tried AIP. That is when the constipation started. Right. So the AIP diet is, is effectively a more restrictive version of a paleo diet. And from my perspective, there are some things about the AIP diet that are great and that I agree with, but it's a very restrictive diet. And we know from our studies, and you'll read in my book, Fiber Fueled, that the number one predictor of a healthy gut microbiome is the diversity of plants in your diet. So being hyper-restrictive is not in the best interest of your long-term gut health. And in a person with ulcerative colitis, we need to heal the microbiome. And the way that we heal it is with plants. So from my perspective, I think what I would say to this person is if you have long-term constipation, we have to deal with the constipation. And it may not be enough to eat the right food and drink more water and exercise. You have to get your bowels moving. But when you get your bowels moving, it will open up the possibility from a dietary perspective. Well, one of the things I learned in your book that blew me away is that you can be constipated and have diarrhea at the same time. That is like mind-blowing. You could poop every day and be constipated because you're not completely evacuating. You can, you can have diarrhea and the cause is constipation because you are backed up with solid stool. The solid stuff backs up and then the liquid sneaks through the cracks and the crevices. And we call that overflow diarrhea. And the paradoxical solution is to actually make them poop. They have diarrhea and the solution is make them poop because if you make them poop, you will actually fix the problem. That is fascinating. I, I, I love talking poop with you, Dr. <laughs> <laughs> Janet says, should people with diverticulosis and diverticulitis avoid foods such as nuts and seeds? So this is a great question, and I'm going to give you my honest <laughs> answer, okay? Which is that the original study that was done that said that nuts and seeds are the issue with diverticulitis goes all the way back to literally 80 years ago, 70 to 80 years ago, done in Africa, all right? If you tried to publish literally the exact same study today, it would be published in such a no-name journal that no one would even know that it exists. But because of the time that it was published 80 years ago, it became a part of the medical lore, and now it's hard to walk it back. Most gastroenterologists at this point do not believe that seeds and nuts actually cause diverticulitis. I do colonoscopies for a living, and I almost have, I very rarely will see any seeds or nuts inside the diverticuli. What I see is I see poop. I see poop stuck within these diverticuli. And I think that that's where the problem lies. And that's due to a low fiber diet that is making it so that you're not having a formed bowel movement moving through. Well, let's see. Nancy says, is this diet okay for an existing gastric ulcer patient or existing gastric ulcer with no pylori? It is being followed by a GI doctor who believes that food does not matter in the healing process. Most doctors don't believe that food matters, <laughs> at least once I've known. Hmm. Yeah, so the, the, the question is, what, what is a good diet in a person who has H. pylori and has a, um, a stomach ulcer? H. pylori is a bacteria that lives inside the stomach. And um, I recommend eradication of H. pylori because it is a carcinogen. It's known to be associated with cancer. And so the, the issue is that you, you need to have the H. pylori eradicated, but then you want to rebuild your microbiome. And the ideal way to rebuild the microbiome is not with probiotics. And by the way, this is true for everyone who takes an antibiotic. 
After an antibiotic, the solution is not to take a probiotic. The solution is your diet. Ideally, you are already eating a plant-based diet, but after the antibiotic, you ramp up and go towards a plant-based diet. It's the dietary fiber that will restore your own healthy microbes. It'll help them to regrow very quickly. Great. Janice wants to know if Advil disrupts the microbiome. It does. And we, you know, we have like literally billions of doses per year in the United States. And the number one cause of ulcers in the United States are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like, like um, ibuprofen, which is Advil. The um, patients who have Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis will flare their ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease by taking these medicines. And they can cause ulcers throughout the entire intestine. So, you know, the bottom line is these are destructive to the intestinal system. They also happen to be bad for the liver and bad for the kidneys. Yeah. Is, is coffee good or bad for the microbiome? Because I've been listening to these summits that are now saying we should drink five cups of coffee a day to prevent stroke. But I can't even, I can't imagine that being so good for your tummy. I think anything in ex excess can be bad, even kale. I think most things in moderation are, are reasonable. And the, so with black coffee, you know, with black coffee, you have polyphenols, which are prebiotic and feed the microbiome. All right. So black coffee is actually really good for our gut microbiome. That being said, and I actually, I actually point this out in my book, there are some people who do not tolerate it well and they get diarrhea. And that is actually a genetic thing. That is a genetically inherited thing. And if that's the case, coffee may not be for you, but guess what? Green tea, black tea too. Black tea and green tea both have also polyphenols, which are great for the microbiome. And my personal favorite is matcha. I love matcha, which has tons of EGCG to feed the microbiome. Nice. So this is from Jackie. She says, I've heard a lot about abdominal fascia and that there are benefits to releasing the fascia through various ways. What is the abdominal fascia and why would someone want to release it? And do you think it should be released and how do we release it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's really a great way. You know, the, the idea of releasing the fascia is very theoretical. What you're talking about are the parts of our, it's almost like the, um, the uh, fat tissue that surrounds the intestines, which is a normal part and it's there. And then there's fascia that's more on the surface around your abdomen. And these, so these are like connective tissues basically. All right, so fascia is connective tissues. And the idea of doing a release suggests that you're breaking up scar tissue. I, I don't know that sort of pushing on the abdomen can disrupt or break up scar tissue. You can do surgery to break up and, and disrupt scar tissue. But the problem with doing that is that we see that many of these people who get that done. We call it the lysis of adhesions. When you have that done, you actually can get even more scar tissue than what you started with. So many times it ends up being a bad deal. Wow. Both Susan and Jan are asking if fiber supplementation is helpful or counterproductive to the microbiome. And then they're talking about things like Benafiber or Metamucil being beneficial for the gut. So to me, there's a hierarchy, All right, You can't supplement your way from a C minus gut to an A plus. It's just not possible. So I believe in diet and lifestyle. I think it starts there. You, you have to try to optimize your diet and lifestyle. That being said, there are certainly studies with prebiotic fiber supplements. And I personally use prebiotic fiber supplements. So I do believe in them. I do believe in them, but I don't want people to think that you can take this fiber supplement and replace real fiber from real food. That's not the point. The 
the benefit of these supplements is that it allows you to really target the microbiome with those specific types of fiber. But at the end of the day, it needs to be diet and lifestyle. That's where we all need to begin. Yep. Agree. Rithvik says, a lot of people believe that dairy yogurt is very healthy because it contains probiotics, which are extremely healthy and beneficial and necessary to the, for the gut bacteria to thrive. Can you please explain the truth about this? Do we even need to take probiotics? Are they helpful or harmful? What is the most powerful thing that we can actually do to maximize our gut health and help our gut bacteria thrive? The, there's a lot of things that we are told that are the result of marketing tools and not the result of high quality clinical research. You know, we are being sold probiotics and it's not that probiotics are worthless or that we have no studies. It's that the stu studies show mild to moderate efficacy at best. Probiotics are not the gut health game changers that you guys have been told. The bottom line is people want to open, want to get you, convince you that you need to open your wallet and spend 40 to $60 because that's how they make a living. And those marketing tools are very powerful. And then frankly, they're much more powerful than them actually conducting clinical research, which is a sad reality. Um, when it comes to uh, things like yogurt, okay, so yogurt has active cultures. The concern from my perspective is, number one, the studies are very weak. The studies that are that there are, are almost exclusively funded by the dairy industry. The dairy industry, you're gonna, it's going to surprise you to hear this, Chef AJ, but I have to give them a compliment, okay? They have been the first of the industries that I'm aware of to really weaponize research in their favor. In other words, they fund research studies and they publish them if it shows that dairy does a good thing. And this is why you see these studies where it says that dairy is good and you, see, you don't see them ever publish their studies that say that dairy does nothing or that dairy is bad. You know, that's the problem is they're funding the research and they get to decide whether or not they want to publish it. And that's what they've done with this yogurt to convince people that yogurt is the solution to gut health. There's no evidence from my perspective that, that I would I would you know, characterize as strong to say that. To me, you want a healthy gut. You want the single most powerful thing that you can do that clearly is evidence-based. That is to increase the diversity of plants in your diet. Whether you are vegan or you have a different way that you eat, it does not matter. Every single one of us needs to increase the diversity of plants in our diet. That is the key to a healthy gut microbiome. Thank you. And let's see, Jessica says, what exactly do you mean by prebiotic fiber supplements? Prebiotic, so people have heard of probiotics. Probiotics are the living bacteria that are in a capsule. Prebiotics are the food, the food that the bacteria eat. So here's the thing, what you hear about these probiotics, like, oh, I need to sprinkle more probiotic bacteria in there. You guys, the bacteria are already there. You already have these bacteria inside of you. You don't need to sprinkle more in there. What you need to do is you need to feed them. They're hungry. And if you want them to survive and to thrive, you need to give them an energy source. And the energy that they consume is fiber. This is why we call fiber prebiotic. Prebiotic basically means that this is the energy source for the bacteria so that they can thrive, so that they can multiply, and then so that they can turn around and give us health benefits. So prebiotic refers to things that feed and nourish the healthy microbiome. Thank you. Wendy says she read a book by Dr. Martin Blazer called Missing Microbes, and it's about H. pylori, that his patients where he eradicated H. pylori, many developed 
chronic coughing and esophageal issues? Can you comment? Yeah, there, so there's some arguments that exist. Um, so first of all, Dr. Marty Blazer is a very well-respected uh, microbiome researcher. And sometimes in medicine, there are areas of debate that exist that you won't necessarily find every doctor uh, across the globe saying the same thing. And I'm not going to say that Marty Blazer is out of line with his, his take on this. Um, what I would say is that I think that each doctor comes to their own decision. So here's the argument. What... Dr. Blazer is referring to is that we evolved to have H. pylori. And there is an argument to be had that the, the eradication of the H. pylori can actually cause harm. And there are some people who believe that, but the issue is that the, the opposite argument is also quite powerful, which is that H. pylori is a carcinogen connected to the development of stomach cancer. We don't have very much stomach cancer in the United States. I don't diagnose that very often. I diagnose colon cancer. If you go to Asia, you'll see tons of stomach cancer. You go to Japan or Korea, tons of stomach cancer. And the reason why, what's different between us and them is H. pylori. They have widely prevalent H. pylori. We have very, very, very little. And from my perspective, if it's me, I'll just speak for myself, it's a known carcinogen. I don't want to leave that in there and see what happens. When we diagnose stomach cancer, usually by the time we realize it's there, it's too late. That's where I got H. pylori was in Japan. Yeah. When I was, yeah, it's, it's widely prevalent over there. Yeah, I was, I was there, as, I used to be a comedian and I was there for a job and I think very sick GI and that's what I had. So I was glad to get rid of it, let me tell you. Uh, Linda asks if somebody who has had their small intestines removed from colitis or Crohn's disease, are they ever able to eat a whole food plant-based diet? And if so, would it just be cooked vegetables or could they eat raw vegetables? Well, that's very individualized because it depends. I mean, if we're talking about having the small intestine removed, it depends on how much you're talking about. You know, some people develop a condition called short gut syndrome. Short gut syndrome can be, in some cases, extremely severe and complicated. So it's hard for me to paint it with broad strokes because that would be entirely personalized to how much intestine has been result, removed. You know, I would like to believe that each of us is capable of, of, of processing um, plants, but the reality is with what she's describing, the idea of short gut syndrome, there is no question that there is a point if enough of the intestine was removed that it may not be possible for the person to get adequate nutrition based on a plant-based diet alone. That's not to say that they would eat a meat-based diet. That's to say that they actually have a severe anatomical abnormality that may require basically advanced medical care. Got it. Jeanette says, do people that had their gallbladder removed need to take any enzymes? Would they benefit from them? So when we talk about enzymes, I think it's important to separate and understand what the enzymes are that we're referring to. The enzymes that any person on this call could get access to and you could get off the internet right now, those are plant enzymes, all right? So that's similar to like bromelain that you will find in pineapples and that bromelain helps to break down and digest protein. So there are enzymes that exist in plants. They can help us to digest and process our food. There are no good studies with these enzymes. That's not to say that they have no value. That's just to say that every single supplement company that makes these enzymes makes their own version of that 
and we haven't really studied or standardized it at all. So we don't know. We don't know whether there's benefit, for example, in a person who has their gallbladder removed. The alternative or the flip side is the enzymes that people who have exocrine pancreatic insufficiency will take. And those enzymes are porcine, meaning they are derived from a pig. Now, I am by no means advocating for, you know, the, the use of these things, but just I'm pointing out as a medical doctor what they are, which is that they're derived from a pig. They are biologically mammalian and they are actual replacement for enzymes for a human. And so, and the people who use this would not be someone who has their gallbladder removed. They're by prescription only and they're designed for people that have severe pancreatic issues. Thank you. Randy says, I've been on Prilosec for 15 years. I've tried three times to get off of it. Even with just eating rice and sweet potatoes and steamed spinach, I am in pain. Last time I got by with Zantac and Tums for a year and then gave up. And even to get by like that, I can't eat any healthy flavorings like tomato or vinegar or lemon or cinnamon and no raw veggies, no berries or grapes. Is there any hope for this person? Well, I think that there's hope. I think that there, but there's also a process. You know, it's, I wish that I could say that I hear a story like that and I can make a sweeping recommendation that will transform the person's, you know, transform this person's health because obviously I care about people and I want to see them healthy and, and strong. The, the issue is this. So let's just speak more broadly about acid reflux and what are our options. Many people who are on proton pump inhibitors want to come off of them. And we do have studies, three studies in particular with diet and lifestyle that I think are very relevant. Number one, we have a study with dietary, with a um, fiber supplement with psyllium husk. So we have a study that shows that simply by taking psyllium husk, you can actually improve your acid reflux. That's because it's feeding the microbiome. That's because it's prebiotic. Acid reflux isn't just acid. It's actually a motility disturbance and it involves our microbiome. The second thing is we have a study with a Mediterranean diet. By Mediterranean, I mean a almost completely plant-based diet. And in that study, they did see improvement of acid reflux. And finally, the third thing is that we have a study with the elimination of caffeine and alcohol and replacement with water. So now that is the foundation, but on an individual basis, from my perspective, the microbiome is implicated and therefore the microbiome needs to be healed. And I would need to look on, at an individual basis what are the things that we can do to help this person heal their microbiome? That's the, that's the solution. That's great. Megan says that she was diagnosed a year ago with a small hiatal hernia and she needs to keep the volume of the meals down. So, I, I mean, there's not, I'm not really seeing a question in there. So maybe is like, you know, we teach calorie density where you eat large volumes of high nutrient calorie dilute food. So would somebody with that have to eat maybe more frequently or smaller meals? Well, it depends on how you, how you personally feel. So here's the thing. Hiatal hernia, I want to explain what this is so that everyone understands. The way that our anatomy in the area of our stomach and our esophagus is designed is that basically the bottom of the esophagus is meant to line up with your diaphragm. Your diaphragm is the muscle at the bottom of your lungs. You take a really deep breath in, that's your diaphragm pulling down to pull air into your lungs. The bottom of your esophagus is supposed to be right there. And when the stomach starts to push up above that, that's a hiatal hernia. Now, a small hiatal hernia is very common. I see these in like 35% of my patients. The hiatal hernia usually is not symptomatic. For some people, it can cause acid reflux. So from my perspective, it's hard for me to give categorical uh, guidance other than to say 
that most of the time you don't need to have your hiatal hernia repaired, particularly when it's small, and that you don't necessarily also have to eat small meals. But I do think that there's value to a predominantly plant-based diet, particularly if there is any um, excessive weight that could be lost, you know, trying to lose weight is helpful in this particular situation. That's great. Thank you. Teresa asks, what do you feel, how do you feel about water colonic cleansing? Is that like um, colonics, I guess? Yeah. Yeah, colonics. So I am not a fan and I'll be honest. Um, and I hope I don't, uh, you know, upset anyone, but the reality is this, that our stool is 60% made up of our microbiome. So our stool is not just like the excrement of our food, it's actually mostly our microbiome. When we flush out our stool, we have studies where people do a bowel flush for colonoscopy and it shows a change to the microbiome. People feel better when they empty their colon, particularly people who are constipated. So I understand that people feel better when they do a colonic and they empty their colon but that doesn't mean that it's good for you. If anything, my concern is that it can actually make you worse because it may be damaging your microbiome. And if the cause of the constipation is damage to the microbiome and flushing it repeatedly is making the microbiome worse, then that's a bad thing. Great. Just so uh, somebody joined late and just make sure you buy this book. It's sold out on Amazon, but you can go to bookshop.org. You can go to Barnes and Noble because this is a great book and you're going to want it because all the answers of all your questions are in here. So Terrific. So Sandra says, is it okay to use digestive enzymes? And on a vegan plant-based diet, is it normal to have very loose bowel movements? So if I, I, when we talk about digestive enzymes, again, we're going back to the plant-based digestive enzymes. And from my perspective, I don't have studies to guide me. So the way that I approach this issue in that setting is this. Do I think that there's risk of hurting people with these digestive enzymes? No, I don't feel like there really is. Um, so to me, the downside is the cost and what are you getting out of that? And so if you use these enzymes and you feel better, then I'm okay. If you're comfortable with the cost, I'm okay. I don't really personally see a downside to, to doing that. Now, when you go to a plant-based diet and you start having diarrhea, I think that this raises, you know, questions. Okay. What is going on and why are you having diarrhea? It's not normal in my opinion to see an increase in diarrhea when you transition to a plant-based diet, there's a couple of things that are possible. One possibility is celiac disease with the consumption of, you know, gluten containing products. And I'm, by the way, if you guys read the book, you're going to see that I actually think that most people should be consuming gluten containing products, but one possibility is celiac disease and the gluten. Another possibility is that some people lack an enzyme, and this is actually genetic, they're born this way, to help them to pro process fructose. Now that doesn't mean that fruit, which contains fructose, is their enemy or bad. It just means that they are congenitally lacking the enzyme and that can actually be easily replaced. And when you do that and you fix this issue, these people, the diarrhea goes away entirely. So it could be the fruit. Nice. Marnie says, when you have nausea or a stomach ache, nothing serious, is it better to eat something that might settle your stomach or just not eat? Well, I, so again, I think you have to personalize a little bit, but I don't really like the idea of saying just don't eat 
because I feel like it creates number one separation from our food, which can lead to sort of disordered patterns. And number two, ultimately these patients, when they use that strategy, end up in my clinic with weight loss and sometimes dangerous weight loss. And then that forces us to basically evaluate. So if the nausea is that severe, then we need to do an investigation to understand where the nausea is coming from. But if we're talking about the occasional mild nausea, that's not like a recurrent chronic problem, then to me, I like ginger. You could do it as ginger tea and it's a nice way to soothe the stomach. You know, I'm, when I grew up, my mom or we had, there was four of us and not if we were seriously, but if we had just like a little stomach ache, she'd put us on what she called the brat diet and we'd have bananas, rice, applesauce, and toast. And to this day, like if I have a tummy ache, I like just, I eat some white rice and it just always makes me feel better. Yeah. No. And you know, actually chef AJ, we still use that for people that are having diarrhea in like a sort of acute diarrhea, but I would never use that as a ongoing diet. That would be like a short term, two days, three days type of thing. Deborah says, what's your opinion on meat replacement products from beyond meat and impossible food? Um, I, you know, I think to me, the answer really should be uniform and consistent for all of us, which is this, that they're designed to taste like meat. Okay. And to recreate meat. Like, I mean, you could take those things and give them to someone who's unsuspecting and they may not be able to tell. And so in a way I applaud the companies for successfully doing that. If that helps to motivate people to move towards a plant-based diet, then I see the value in that. But let's not pretend that those are healthy foods. They're highly processed. And let's not pretend that we don't have better alternatives. You know, um, it's amazing how popular those things have become when we've had garden burgers for 20 years. And the garden burger is a lot healthier. Yeah. Or a bean burger, you know? Or, or you can make a delicious portobello. I mean, I can't even imagine, by the way, how good your portobello mushroom would be, Chef AJ. And I'm... I, I'm sure you would be like marinating in some sort of balsamic. I, I make such good bean burgers and even bean burgers without beans. Like I just can't, I don't know why people need that unless they just are trying to recreate something. But I think know. it's a transition thing. I think it's people who want, who miss that flavor. Right. Okay. Linda says she just ordered the book. Can't wait to receive. So guys, everybody that is watching this and even on the replay, you must order this book. Or I, <laughs> I love it, Linda. Thank you. Thank yep. you. I look forward we to, have to talk. So when you talk, make, make sure you talk when you hold it up because you held it up, but you weren't talking. So this Oh my is, gosh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, Linda, book. thank you so much. No, I appreciate your support and um, I hope you guys check out the book. Absolutely. Okay, so Susan says, can Dr. Willby explain the biological mechanism by which Chef AJ reversed her precancerous polyps with eating whole food plants? So in 2003, I was bleeding and I was diagnosed with precancerous polyps, but they couldn't remove them. And I didn't want to have, they couldn't remove them during the normal, you know, colonoscopy because my colon was very dirty because I had eaten crap for 43 years. So I didn't want to have surgery. So I went to the Optimum Health Institute and I went on a 100% raw food you know, no sugar, oil, flour, alcohol, salt diet. And within six months when they repeated it, I had no polyps and yet they had pictures of it everywhere and nobody believed it. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I, I believe you. Um, so, you know, let me uh, explain what's happening on a biological basis. 
But also let me say that, and I think you know what my position is on this Chef AJ, which is that I'm a huge believer in colonoscopy. You know, I, I actually am, I become very surprised when this is a controversial topic in the vegan community, because to me, when you look at the data, colonoscopy is saving lives. And I see it firsthand in my gastroenterology practice. And it's a little bit frustrating to me. You know, I, first of all, my money is where or my, my actions are where my mouth is. And what I mean by that is that I'm turning 40 in two months and I'm going to get a colonoscopy because I want to know that I'm safe. And I've seen too many things and it scares me too much. I've diagnosed people in their 40s with colon cancer and I've diagnosed, with ve I've diagnosed vegans who didn't think that they needed a colonoscopy and they died. And you know, it makes me upset when people who are not gastroenterologists make recommendations that are outside the bounds of their, of their expertise. But on a biological basis, with regard to reversing your polyps, Chef AJ, what's fascinating is that if you eat, so first of all, what fuels colon cancer? It's fat from red meat. It's the fat that basically causes your liver to produce more bile. And the bile is actually turned by the microbiome into secondary bile salts that cause irritation disruption of the lining of the colon and ultimately the formation of these precancerous polyps that will mature over the course of years and potentially turn into cancer. Now, we don't know that every polyp will continue to grow, 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 grow until it's cancer. They may grow for a little bit and then recede and go away. But if you want to get the scales of balance in your favor, you transition off of a meat-based diet and onto a plant-based diet. And when you feed the microbiome with fiber, it produces butyrate. And butyrate directly impairs colon cancer development. And that becomes very important. Wow. I, you know, just so you know, I was vegan 26 years when I was diagnosed, but I was basically just eating crap. I did not eat a single fruit and vegetable until I was 43. So. Yeah. Well, and, and as you know, there's, there's so many variations of a vegan diet because like, it's almost not fair to call it vegan in a way, because what are we talking about? It could be anything from a, a junk food vegan diet all the way through a whole food plant-based no oil diet. And those are radically different diets because truly veganism is motivated by the ethics and a whole food plant-based diet is motivated by the nutrition. Right, terrific. Uh, let's see, where was, oh, you know, a lot of hairdressers I know cut their own hair. You're not gonna do your own colonoscopy, right? No, no, <laughs> no. I'm, I'm fortunate that because I am a partner in our medical practice, I can have one of my partners do it for me. Wow, and maybe even get a discount, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, uh, Sandra says, um, what is scientifically proven? Do, do probiotics work? What about stool testing to detect your biome? What can we do to improve our biome? How do we tell if our biome is healthy? What are the signs of digestive problems linked to the biome? And what can we do to repair our gut biome? I mean, it sounds to me like the answer is read the book, <laughs> but maybe there's a shorter answer to some. Yeah, well, the, I think you, there's, it's a series of questions to basically infer like, so how do you know if there's something wrong? And the answer to this question is it's not stool testing. Okay. Stool testing has not gotten to a place where we can rely on that for clinical use. I actually don't order stool testing for the microbiome. Many people will bring it into my practice and I'll review it. And I find it curious, but we don't have adequate studies to say that we should be using this clinically. And the, the answer to this question is actually quite clear to me. 
the person who's suffering with digestive issues, you know, chronic issues, gas, bloating, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, blood in the stool, constipation, food sensitivity, and even people that have other stuff like brain fog and rashes and joint pains, many of these things are connected to the gut. There's a laundry list of conditions that I gave in chapter one of my book. Immune-mediated issues like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis, neurologic issues, depression, anxiety, um, ADD, uh, migraine headaches, metabolic issues, type 2 diabetes, weight gain. These, these different things, you know, I, I frequently have people in my clinic where they're there for their digestive issue, but I see them and they have migraines, they have anxiety, they have a thyroid issue. And they have asthma. And I'm like, okay, every single one of those conditions is associated with damage to the gut. It's obvious what's going on. They have damage to their gut. It needs to be fixed. Great. Let's see. Megan says, are burps after a meal a sign of acid reflux or overeating? They can be a sign of acid reflux in some cases. What's important to understand is that when you burp, that is air that has been swallowed at some point. All right. So that's not air produced inside your intestine somehow the air is sneaking in. Typically you are swallowing it during the meal and then you're bringing it back up. Some people have a condition called aerophagia where they will burp repeatedly. The person who burps 20 times in a minute or can like do the ABCs, that's a person who is basically swallowing, swallowing air, burping, swallowing air, burping, swallowing air, burping, and it's like a cycle in a way. You know, why are people get so embarrassed when they fart? Like, to me, it's just like, I mean, I wish that there could be a, like a law or something so that we wouldn't have to try to suppress it because, I mean, isn't it just normal? Like, why, why like people make such a big deal about it? I mean, my daughter. Um, because I think that we, it's like something that gets the enamor of three-year-old boys and then we feel like, oh, well, it's so immature to have that or whatever. And, you know, we all do it and it's a part of human biology and it's really not that big of a deal. Yeah. Lacey says, I love Dr. Will. He changed my mind on getting a colonoscopy. Karen says, I love that he keeps going back to the studies in his answers. The science is the best. And she wanted to know if psoriasis was gut related. Psoriasis is gut related. Psoriasis is an immune mediated skin condition and every immune mediated uh, condition, whether it's psoriasis or Crohn's or celiac, they all are connected back to the gut microbiome, all of them. That is great. Okay, I'm scrolling because there's lots of questions. Where did I just put this one? Ah, okay. Susan says, my daughters think they may have connective tissue disorder, EDS. Both have had digestive issues for many years. They both have tried a variety of plant-based diets to help reduce their symptoms without much benefit. Do you see EDS presenting in digestive disorders? And if so, what should they do differently? So it's hard to make categorical recommendations, but I think that there's, there is no question that the gut microbiome is important to these types of conditions. It's just, it's, it's very clear that these conditions are associated back to changes in the gut microbiome there is no universal cure all when it comes to diet. I wish that there was, you know, I wish that we could say, do this with your diet and every single one of us would cure every single disease, but we have, each one of us has, has vulnerabilities or susceptibilities that we're more likely to encounter. And this may be one that runs in the family. 
the, the point from my perspective is that you want to make sure that you're not just eating plant-based, that you're actually eating a plant-based with a wide variety of different plants. And you also want to, to the best of your ability, optimize the lifestyle factors. Because let's not, let's not overlook the fact that it's not just diet. It's not just diet. It's also your lifestyle. There are ways that you can change your lifestyle. You can make sure that you're getting your eight hours of sleep per night. You can go to bed earlier. You can have 12 to, th to 15 or 16 hours of fasting. You know, um, you can get the exercise. You can spend time outdoors. You can, you know, um, uh, get, get dirty once in a while. You know, the, all these things across the board are connected back to our digestive health. I wish there was a one-size-fits-all, but I, there isn't. Honeybee says, should we replace the electrolytes after a bout of diarrhea? Or how should we replace electrolytes after a bout of diarrhea? Well, if, if what we're talking about is severe diarrhea, you know, explosive diarrhea, the type of thing that's watery and, and potentially continues through the night, you're probably talking, if it's acute, if it's sudden onset, you're probably talking about an infection. And to replace that, um, believe it or not, the best thing that you can get at your store is Pedialyte. Pedialyte is designed for that. Nice. Blanca says, I suffer with GERD and I have to take Dexalent every day. Do you recommend fundusduplication? Funduplication? So, yeah, so this, that would be a repair of the bottom of the esophagus. Okay, so there are, I, I will tell you this, the surgeons don't wait or actively try to recruit my business because I'm not sending a lot of business out for fundoplication. Um, there is the occasional patient that it makes sense, but you have to understand that in the long-term studies of the surgery, because you have to go and have surgery to do this. And in the long-term studies looking out after 10 years, almost all patients end up back on medication within 10 years. And in some cases there are complications from the surgery. So is the juice worth the squeeze? That's the question. I love that. Is the juice worth the squeeze? That is, that's a new saying to me. I love it. You got to think about it. That is great. Janice says, when you say diversity, how many varieties of plants should we be eating on a daily basis? I tend to eat simply and almost the same thing every day. Right. And that's, and that's where there's an opportunity where you can be plant-based and you can be vegan and you can, you can improve your digestive health by introducing this simple idea. So let me say this, it's not necessarily on a single day, how many you should get in the study, which is the American gut project. They looked at how many plants people were eating per week. And the number was 30 was the threshold. Now that's not to say that 30 is magically better than 29. It's not. That's just the way that they did their statistical analysis. The bottom line is we should be striving though to try to get more than 30 in a week. And there's ways that this can be done. Let me give you an example. And I'm sure Chef AJ, you have examples for yourself. We're a normal family. Sometimes we eat simple food. Sometimes we have spaghetti and tomato sauce. Okay, so we will have an organic whole wheat spaghetti and some tomato sauce, but guess what? I'll get my kids involved. My son is three, my daughter is six. I'll have them throw some onions, some garlic, some mushrooms, some zucchini, throw that in the sauce. Get some kale or some spinach in there. Let it simmer, smells amazing. The kids are excited because they were a part of cooking it. And then when you serve it, get some basil and some fresh parsley in there. You have a delicious meal, and now it went from two plants up to nine. It tastes way better, and your gut microbes are celebrating because you're feeding them. That's great. Angela says, my granddaughter routinely gets earaches. I tell my stepdaughter to get her off dairy, and she tells me her pediatrician, 
pediatrician says it's crucial for her development, which of course we know is wrong. Right. What is the effect of dairy in small children and toddlers gut biome and could that influence ear infections in children? That's an interesting question. I haven't seen great studies looking specifically at dairy and the gut microbiome, but dairy is not designed for raising a human child. It's, it's designed for raising a calf. You know, the, the milk that is designed for raising a human child is human breast milk. And human breast milk can, does contain some amazing things that help to protect us, like human milk oligosaccharides, HMOs. These HMOs are fascinating because they have no nutritional value to the child. They are actually there purely to feed the microbiome of the child. And, um, you know, for what it's worth, I mean, this is just an anecdote, but my, my children are almost 10 years between the two of them and they've never been on antibiotics. And it's not because I've withheld them or anything like that. I honestly think it's because my kids eat a, a delicious, diverse plant-based diet. And also my wife breastfed them until they were two. Yeah, that's great. Breastfeeding. Linda says, how would we know if we have H. pylori? Um, testing. You would have to be tested. So, and there's a breath test, there's a stool test, or your doctor can take biopsies during an endoscopy. All right. Uh, this question for Susan sounds like maybe she would need a consult. And I don't know if you do them privately or... Well, so believe it or not, because I'm a medical doctor, I'm very restricted in terms of what I'm able to do. And so what that means is that I can see people in the state of South Carolina. I can't um, provide medical care to people outside of the state of, medical, of South Carolina because I don't have a medical license in those other states. Wow. Maybe they could fly there. Yeah. We, what we may need to do, you know, with the book, um, I think I feel like there's going to be an, an increasing interest in this. And so I, I think that I'm going to have to figure out a way to accommodate people who want to travel. But what I have done, Chef AJ, that is something that, you know, I'm, I'm able to do is I created a course. And I'm really excited about it because I've beta tested the course twice and had amazing results in the people that have gone through the course. Um, and I'm hoping to have that ready to, ready to launch this summer. Well, when you have it, you tell me because I'm going to tell everybody and I'll, we'll do this again and send it out to our, I mean, this sounds amazing. Yeah. That would be amazing. I would love to take your course. It's just that's, I'm so fast. Oh, I'll let you do it. It'll, it'll okay. be great. No, it's a seven week course, um, seven week course. And basically what it is, is take the book and let's unpack it even more. Let's take a deeper dive and let me basically provide all of the fundamental education that I wish I could, whether you're my own patient or not. I want to give you everything that you need to be able to thrive. Maybe everybody could tell their gastroenterologist to take the course too. <laughs> anyway, so Susan was saying that she knows wheat causes her colon to work poorly with spasms and cramps, so she avoids it, but she still sometimes has pencil stools and incomplete evacuation. I've had a third of my colon removed because of diverticulitis seven years ago. I'm nervous that the rest of my colon is also starting to deteriorate, and I have had diverticulosis throughout the whole colon for 20 years. Do you have any insight for me? Yeah, actually I do. So I, I, again, I obviously am not giving medical advice, so please don't take it as such. I'm just speaking broadly to sort of the description that I'm, I'm being given. But, you know, when a person has a pencil stool, that's not a motility problem. When you have a pencil stool, it's that your bottom is not relaxing properly. And there are these conditions called pelvic dysinergia, where the muscles down in the bottom of the pelvis or the anal sphincter 
are not properly relaxing, or in some cases, they actually clamp down when they're supposed to relax. And that, again, it's not a motility problem. That's actually the, the bottom. And the fix, the solution is not laxatives. The solution to that is actually to work with a pelvic physical therapist. There are physical therapists, they're almost universally women, that work with people that have pelvic disorders, whether it be this, which is a form of constipation, or fecal incontinence, which is where you have some incontinence of stool, or urinary issues. And these pelvic therapists can work to reset basically the, the pelvic muscles so that they're functioning the way they're supposed to. And if the bottom can relax, then you can evacuate the bowel movement and you don't have that incomplete or pencil. That, is, that just shows how smart you are that you know about pelvic floor physical therapy because so many people don't. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. That's, that is like one of the, that is one of the like magic tricks that I use where I have people who have like seen three or four doctors and they come to me and you realize that they're constipated and the solution is not laxatives, but it's actually a pelvic therapist. That is so great. Angela says, I've eaten whole food plant-based for many years, but over time I've developed a problem with having stinky gas whenever I eat anything containing oatmeal. Why, why could be the cause of this change in my gut? You know, it's hard to know. The oat, so oatmeal is known to have several specific types of fiber. One of the ones that's in oatmeal is beta-glucans. Beta-glucans are actually incredibly good for you and great for the immune system. So I'm just speculating here because it's hard to know. I mean, you could, you could sort of play this game with almost any food. You could toss out a food and say, why is that giving me stinky gas? There's something unique to the gut microbiome in this person that is probably producing this. And, you know, what I would be curious to know is whether or not dietary changes um, would, would help to, like, could you moderate the amount of oatmeal and not have the stinky gas problem? Could it be improved just by making that type of change? Cool. Okay, let me go to the questions here. Can I have a healthy gut microbiome if I have to take PPIs daily? You can, but in a perfect world, I would work to try to get you off of the PPI because the issue is the proton pump inhibitor. So we're talking about things like Nexium or Prilosec, something like that. It suppresses stomach acid, which does change the microbiome and has been associated with the development of small intestine bacterial overgrowth. So in a perfect world, many doctors are extremely comfortable with the idea of keeping their patients on PPIs forever. I'm not as comfortable with this idea. I would prefer to make steps towards getting them off. The challenge is how do you go about doing that? We've already talked a little bit about some of the things that you can do from a dietary perspective, lifestyle perspective, to try to improve acid reflux. Okay. I just saw, oh, here, Karen, is fiber one cereal a wrong choice? It has, isn't it sweetened with like artificial sweeteners? And I heard that like things like stevia and artificial sweeteners are not good for our gut. Artificial sweeteners are horrible for the gut. And, you know, there is no sweetener that I'm aware of that I would characterize as being good for the gut. I think that sweeteners should be done in moderation at most. You know, I personally, although it was not, I used to do Splenda in my coffee every day. And um, probably six years ago, I got rid of it and I went black. And it wasn't. You never adjusted. went back. <laughs> I never went back. Once I adjusted to it, I mean, it took me maybe two, three weeks to get used to it. Now I love it. I would never go back. That is great. I just said, I'm sorry. Oh, here from Melody. Do you think people who are sensitive to gluten on Cirex Labs gluten profile should consume gluten? Please explain more why you think we should be eating gluten. 
So I actually go into great detail in my book in chapter five on this topic. Okay. And the reason that I felt compelled to address the gluten issue is that currently about one in three Americans are actively trying to restrict their gluten. And based upon the studies that I've seen, that alarms me. That alarms me because it's not one in three Americans that have celiac disease. Only about 1% of people have celiac disease. Now, if you have celiac, if you have that, you need to be gluten-free. And this person who's asking me about the antibodies, they need to be tested for celiac. And the test is to do an upper endoscopy with biopsies of the small intestine while you are actively consuming gluten. You need to know whether or not you actually have celiac disease. But if we operate under the assumption that there is no celiac disease, we have studies showing us that people who go gluten-free increase their risk of having a heart attack. The number one killer in the United States is heart disease. The last thing that we should be doing is increasing our risk of the number one killer, the biggest threat that we have. That's the last thing that we should be doing. And the reason that this is the case is that wheat is not this vile, horrible, deplorable thing that you've been told. Wheat has whole grains and, and whole grains help to prevent coronary artery disease. And when you get rid of wheat, and you go gluten-free, most people don't get enough whole grains in their diet, and therefore they increase their risk of having a heart attack. So from my perspective, most people who think that they need to be gluten-free should not be gluten-free. They should be consuming healthy forms of wheat, not the processed junk in the middle of the store. I'm talking about organic bread. I'm talking about sprouted. I'm talking about Ezekiel. I'm talking about fermented sourdough. Great. Karen says, is Barrett esophagus related to the gut microbiome? Well, we know that acid reflux is related to the gut microbiome. And Barrett's esophagus is the result of chronic acid reflux. It's a change in the lining of the esophagus, which is a pre-cancerous condition. Now, I don't know if you knew this about me, Chef AJ. When I was at the University of North Carolina, this is what I was doing my research in, was Barrett's esophagus. I've published more than 10 papers on this topic. And so the good news is this, the vast majority of people who have Barrett's esophagus will never get esophageal cancer. It doesn't mean it should be dismissed. Esophageal cancer, when it occurs, is horrible, extremely dangerous. One of the most uh, deadly cancers, the second, actually the second most deadly behind pancreatic. But when you have Barrett's, there are, there are um, measures that can be implemented to protect you. And that's the bottom line. Wow. Lainey says, why would I get lower abdominal pain after I poop? Could be spasm. It's hard, it's hard to completely know, but it certainly could be spasm. Wow. Uh, Linda asks, because you were talking about pelvic floor physical therapy, if, if we should be doing Kegel exercises. I saw that. So you can do Kegel exercises if you like, but that's not what the pelvic therapists are doing. The pelvic right. therapists have very specific things that they work on with you. Janet says, do antibiotics damage the gut long-term and should one use probiotics for an extended time after a course of antibiotics? Antibiotics alter the gut microbiome depending on which one you take and for how long that determines the effect. Just five days of uh, an antibiotic like Cipro that is frequently used for urinary tract infections can alter 35% of the gut microbiome and we potentially may see those changes still present to some degree 
years later, meaning that the gut microbiome never gets exactly to where it was before. Probiotics are a big no-no. There was a study done in September 2018 that showed us that when you take probiotics after antibiotics, you actually slow the recovery of the gut microbiome. The solution to recovering the gut microbiome is to feed it with dietary fiber, meaning fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes. So, but to take probiotics, actually my patients who go on an antibiotic, if they're on an antibiotic, I will take them off the probiotic for at least four weeks. Great. Let's see, where did this go? I'm so sorry. I, hmm, well, oh, here's one. Okay, uh, from Barbara. I tried to eat beans the way you said on a previous broadcast, eating a very small amount and increasing it, but I still can't seem to tolerate it. What advice do you have for people that just really feel like their insides are being ripped when they eat legumes? Well, you need, first of all, you need to make sure that they're like, so you need to make sure that there's no other medical issue in play. That's number one. And so if I hear this story, you know, that's extreme and I want to make sure that I'm not missing something. So I'm going to do an investigation to make sure that there's no other explanation for why this person has such digestive distress. The second thing is you need to start with the low FODMAP content beans like lentils, all right, which aren't beans. I mean, legumes, you need to start with lentils and you need to ease in from there. The third thing is that you need to understand that it's going to take time. And there are patients who I've talked to and dealt with where it takes them three or four weeks. I'm not saying that you live with the pain, but I'm saying that it can take time to really start to build up that strength. And then when you turn the corner, you will feel remarkably better. Great. So you were talking about the spices when you were talking about your kids and making dinner. And Jessica said, do dried spices work as well as fresh in regards to variety, things like basil and oregano? Um, it's hard for me to feel. So I haven't seen any specific studies with the microbiome and dried versus fresh spices, but you know, I'm always going to err on the side of the fresh spice as opposed to the dried you know, that's the way that nature intended it. And so do I think that that means that we should avoid dried spices? No, throw them in there, be liberal. But if you give me a choice between a dried spice and a fresh spice, I'm always 100% of the time going to take the fresh. Right. Well, that's it for the questions. I want, I know you'll stay longer because that's the kind of guy you are, but I'd rather just have you back and because you've had a really long day, I know this has been a really special day in your life that you'll always remember. And please guys, get the book. It's such a good book and you won't be sorry. It's got great recipes, but more than that, I mean, look at all, I mean, half the book is the, is the references. It's like, really, <laughs> there's, it's just like, really, look at how many. That's a lot of work. This is what, two years of your life, right? Yeah, it's two years of my life. And you know what's interesting? So you, you actually have the galley version in your hands, Chef AJ. And what we had to do was you see how thick the back of the book is with the references. It's like 50 or 60 pages, right? So what we had to do was you, you guys can see this here, how thick this book is. Okay. And we, we actually had to remove the references from the book, but I, I really strongly believe in the science that I'm sharing with you. And I believe in transparency. I got nothing to hide. And so the references, it's not that the references are non-existent. Instead, what we did is we gave you a link to my website at the end of each chapter. If you go to my website, so you guys right now on this webinar, you can do this right now if you want to. You don't have to have the book. You don't, in fact, you never have to buy the book if you don't want to. Yes, yes, they do. I, I correct them. They do have to buy the book. 
Well, just being, just being a gentleman about it, you can have these references for free. I'll give them to you. You guys could all have them five minutes from now. Go to my website, theplantfedgut.com, and you just click the research link. And I, what I did is I prepared. I decided I wanted to make lemonade out of a lemon. So they told me, hey, we got to take the references out of your book. Well, I wasn't happy about that, all right, because I wanted them in there to show people what all the work that I did. But what I decided to do is I created a research guide. So you can have all 600 references. And in addition, I created basically the introduction to clinical research for all, for anyone who's interested so that you can have an idea. Like when you hear someone say, you shouldn't eat lectins, you shouldn't eat beans. And you're confused because I'm over here telling you lectins are like cancer protective and you should eat beans. And you're trying to figure out where the truth lies. You need a strategy to try to figure this out. And that's where this research guide that I provided gives you the tools that you need to start to separate the noise from the truth, because the truth is what's going to lead you to better health. And we need to be really good about finding that. You know, I just realized we're both wearing plant-based shirts and I don't know why I didn't wear the one that said fiber is the new protein tonight. Darn, if I only had it to do over. So many people are saying they're going to get the book or they've gotten the book and they're looking forward to your course. The only thing with the galley copies, I didn't get to see all the test, you know, uh, the endorsements that, so I'm going to have to buy a real copy just for that. But I'm really waiting for it to come out on Audible because I'm, I, I really retain things better when I listen. I know you said it will be coming out pretty soon. I, I checked today. It's still not available, but that's how I'm going to get it. It's coming out. So the audible version will come out in June. Um, just for a warning, just full disclosure. So, cause I don't want people to be disappointed. Um, I am not the voice of audible. Okay. And the reason why is because of COVID-19 and there was no studio open during the month of April for me to record. So they had to hire someone who had the availability of a, stu of a studio. So there's someone else who's going to read it and he's going to do a great job. I approved of the voice of me. <laughs> um, 